0: Hi, I'm Dhrithi Shah and this is my podcast, Have You Thought About? I'm a writer who loves to find out about what passions people are pursuing, especially if they're managing to blend together all their skills in unusual ways. In each edition, I'm going to chat with someone I find particularly interesting and someone who's managed to fit things together in their life or profession that you might not think of as an obvious match. Now you're about to hear me chatting with Lee Ray, an author, wildlife lover and academic. Hi Lee, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Now first, you have this amazing book called The Atlas of the Early Modern Wildlife and it would be remiss for me to not start off with it. It catalogues the state of nature in Britain and Ireland between 1519 and 1772. It's a pretty hefty tome. But how on earth did you think to come up with, let alone embark on a project like this?
1: Thanks so much for inviting me to be on your podcast, Riti. The Atlas of Early Modern Wildlife came about because I wanted to write about wildlife in the past, but I knew that I didn't want to just write a story of wildlife where I sort of go through by date what was happening. I wanted to write something which would actually be useful for people who study wildlife in the present, particularly for conservation conversations. So we often talk about restoring nature in conservation. So I wanted to write something which would give an idea of a a specific period and a set of information and data about how we could restore nature to the point where it's been in the past.
0: But what made you think this is something that I really have to create into a book?
1: That's a good question. (laughs) I knew that when a few years ago I was translating a natural history book from Scotland um, from the 17th century and I thought it was fantastic. Lots of different secondary sources were referring back to this one 17th century scottish latin natural history so i worked a lot on talking about that book and translating it what i found with the book was that there were actually a lot of books in that same genre so it wasn't just that one there were lots of books from the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries. And I realised that if I put them all together, I might be able to come up with a, a real state of nature from the time period, which I didn't think had been done before.
0: you have maps? You have like these beautiful visuals? Like, How did that all come about?
1: I feel like with just text, you don't get the whole story. So the maps are really good because they show where the animals live and what they're doing in different areas. The pictures are good as well because they show how much people actually knew about the actual animals. And they give you a sense of the complete picture which people had of these animals. You know, you've got wolves looking ferocious and rabbits being eaten and that sort of thing. So it's not just about cold clinical descriptions of the animals.
0: And for people perhaps aren't aware of how the book publishing world works, it must have been a bit of a journey to actually create it.
1: Well, it was a a long, a long task. So it's. I suppose it's a bit different for fiction and non-fiction. With fiction books, you sort of come up with a concept. This is what I've heard. I've never written fiction before. I've heard you come up with a concept and you find someone who's interested in that concept and then you talk it through with them. Whereas with non-fiction, you sort of write it and then you go to a publisher and say, do you think this is good? And they say, no. <laughs> but I, yeah, so I spent years researching, reading i read over over 200 books from the time period and put them all together bringing in all all the data and what i came up with was the the basis of this book and then once once i had the maps i had to sort of interpret them and do some data statistical analysis and draw out interesting facts and figures and and also i did a bit of a lit review so i've got lots and lots of sources in the back so i think it was about four years um, that it took me to write. And then I shopped around for the publishers.
0: <laughs> With that shopping around process, was that easy? Did you have uh, acceptance straight away?
1: I was really lucky I'm quite active on social media with my research and I was determined to be sort of sharing it all the way through. So over those years, when I was researching, I was sharing maps here and there. My maps changed a lot actually, but I had had these maps and because I'd been sharing them for so long, I had quite a big network of people interested, including a couple of publishers. And so when it came to time to look for a publisher, a couple of people were interested straight away. So I suppose it's an advantage of sharing your work all the way through, even though you end up with with less novel stuff at the
0: end, but having gone through that process and all that research and as you say all the imagery, the text, the mapping, what are some of the more unusual things that you discovered that say a reader wants to go out and get your book has to look forward to
1: oh some of my my top findings is it well there's lots of stuff that surprised me all the way through, so I quite often start with the rabbits because just I thought this was going to be a really easy species to do, just a rabbit, you know, they're they're everywhere nowadays. But what I found was that in the past, some historians, especially English economic and agricultural historians, had described these rabbits as being found throughout England, all over the place, and naturalised wild from the 14th century after they were introduced in the second half of the medieval period. But Scottish and Welsh historians weren't really agreeing. They were saying rabbits are just found around the coastlines. And what my research found was that both actually seemed to have been correct. So I found rabbits around Wales and Scotland especially are found around the coastlines. In the mainland England, especially in the south and in the north of the country, there were rabbits all over the place inland as well. So it was this strange dichotomy between the the two areas. And there's little surprises like that all the way through. When I came to do the wheat ear, which is a a a little songbird, which you normally now find on islands and maybe in really upland areas, it nests in old walls and rocks. I found lots of descriptions of wheat ears nesting in rabbit warrens. And there are lots of descriptions of these wheat ears in lowland England, which really surprised me. But it's just because that's the area where the rabbit warrens had been created, and they weren't found these wheatiers weren't recorded inland in other areas just because there weren't weren't many rabbits there so it seems that there was this partnership between the animals as well as between humans and animals going on
0: there's even fish in there this is the thing there's nothing yeah. that you haven't uh included it seems is that fair to say
1: no actually i suppose that's not not entirely fair i included all the species which were the the most most commonly talked about. So I have lots of fish, and they were talked about because they were delicious. And I have lots of birds, which people hunted, and some of the larger raptors, which they were just interested in as potential pests. Um, Lots of mammals, um, but hardly any invertebrates. So they talk about the pearl mussel because they could get pearls from them. And they talk about um, things like oysters, which they would eat. Um, but I, I don't have many records at all of, of things like butterflies or beetles, which, of course, just weren't of much interest to them, not of much utilitarian value. So these people just didn't record them, which means I can't really make maps of them.
0: From what you've learned and the procedures that you underwent in order to to, to do this mapping, to... to- uncover the research the archives what can we who are here present learn in terms of how we're record keeping when it comes to the creatures that are around us right now is there anything
1: oh we do records so much better nowadays if you look at a, a really well-known species there'll be millions of records of it because we, we go out and record the the songbirds in our gardens and ducks and, and geese around wild areas so often there are some really interesting contrasts. So nowadays, the best recorded areas of Britain and Ireland are lowland England, especially southeast England around London, just where the the naturalists who live there go out into the countryside each weekend and scour the countryside looking for all sorts of animals. But in the early modern period, better recorded than that were actually the, the little islands around the highlands of Scotland. So Orkney and Shetland Islands and the Hebrides were better recorded because people thought that these were really interesting avenues for exploration and places where, where it was, it was appropriate to go and create inventories and map the natural resources of the area. So there is that interesting contrast, which maybe tells us a bit about where people think the nature exists. But I don't know what we can do about that, really.
0: Well, this is a have you thought about, so maybe some of the audience can have a think about what we can do. Now, the thing is, your love of wildlife, it isn't purely academic or even in this book. Now, you ran a slow worm project for six years. So can you share a little bit more about that? But first, for those who don't know, what is a slow worm?
1: A slow worm is the most beautiful creature in God's creation. They are brown, sometimes silver, sometimes reddish. They are Long animals, they look like snakes, but they're actually legless lizards. They have eyelids and their tongues are not forked all the way down. They're just notched at the tip. They sometimes have blue spots when they get old, especially the males. And they like to clump together under old bits of tin and things like that to warm up in the in the warm re- weather during sort of spring, summer and, and early autumn So I ran a project at my previous employer at Cardiff University. I I just realised there were slow worms on the site one day. And I said, can we start looking after this site in a way which helps slow worms? Can I start coming to the site every week and and checking on them? And they said, yes. So I started checking on them each week and recording the numbers. And they're lovely, lovely little creatures.
0: (laughs) I'm amazed. I never would have considered slow worms to be so wonderful, but now I I feel like I need to go and find out a lot, lot more. (laughs) Um, The passion. Now, wildlife, we love that, but you're non-binary and you embraced the identity more publicly a few years ago. So can you share, if you'd like to, what your experience is like? And is there anything that you can offer for perhaps someone who's listening, who's in the process of figuring out their own identity?
1: I... I Came out um, more publicly about five years ago. It's been quite nice. I think everyone's been pretty positive about it, in professionally at least. I think anyone who has a problem with it seems to have just not talked to me about it, which is fine. That's <laughs> great. It doesn't seem like it's affected me very much And I've, I've I've got new jobs and things since coming out. So I think in. If if you happen to be teaching, um, it doesn't seem to affect things too much. Um, or maybe I'm just missing all the effects that it has because they're all behind closed doors. I think I'm better at better at teaching and more positive and more enthusiastic since since embracing my my more authentic self. Um, so look forward to it. It sounds like if you are someone who's questioning, maybe you are at the beginning of being more happy. So positive vibes all the way
0: element of the of the questioning it did you have people to speak to did you like how did you figure it out because it is at a later age it's not like when you're a teenager or even as a child in this respect so again in terms of what you're comfortable with sharing what helped you with that journey of self-exploration I guess
1: this is a (laughs) tricky one I think I grew up under UK law a system where queer identities just weren't talked about in schools and there had been a bit of a regression actually so when I was growing up gay was a was a slur used on the playground and um, that's that's gay people would say I suppose that the teachers were kind of powerless to prevent that because they weren't allowed to talk about being queer or, or that people in the past had, had had been gay so all of a sudden there was this step back and because I grew up under that I didn't really have the any heroes or anyone to to think about from that perspective? I was helped a bit on on social media. Actually, the early days of social media, Facebook back in the day used to call everyone. They they invented this pronoun themselves, singular themselves, not themselves, but themselves. Well, they claim they invented it to talk about people. But back in the day on Facebook, it would say what are you doing and you were supposed to talk about yourself in the third person so it would be today lee is pleased with themself for example and if it didn't know your your pronoun it would just guess they and and it would use themself i i quite liked that i knew i liked that i've i i always described it in the in the, the terminology the language which i had when i was doing my a levels i learned that there were people who had a low gender focus so i called myself that for several years but then i sort of learned more as i came out and and as as I as I removed myself from school where there was no education going on if you like
0: <laughs> I'm not aware of that term what's the term
1: this was a term probably made up for A level psychology back in the day and it was low gender focus they said some some individuals have a low gender focus and they don't feel very masculine or very feminine and it was a probably a, a way around talking about queer identities <laughs> Never heard it used before or since, so it's probably not a real term. But it was it was one that I seized on at the time.
0: Well, if it helps with identity embracing, then let's take it. Mm-hmm. But as you got older or as you engaged further with all aspects of, of your identity and what you're comfortable with, were there any elements which were a bit harder in terms of having those conversations where you just were like, oh no, actually, I'm here, I'm queer, this is what I do, and just let's get on with it, it's part of who I am. Like, were there bits where you had to sort of think twice about You know, do you fill in a a box on a form? Do you do this? Do you do that? Like how have you managed to to keep going, I guess?
1: (laughs) Well, there's little little struggles every day, isn't there? Um, I think society still isn't really used to having non-binary people in it. So there's lots of, you know, you go to the dentist and asks, gives you a tick box for are you male or female and you think, Why does that matter for my (laughs) teeth? But you just you you get through it. You don't fill it in, or you you cross through it. There's the new movement in Japan is X gender, where people just cross through both boxes, male and female, and I quite like that. <laughs> it's a good approach to filling in those boxes. And and people ask you silly questions, and you just deal with them. But yeah, it's quite helps now that um, there's more online meetings and more conversations by email than than they used to be 10 years ago, I suppose, before COVID. My employer has an option where I can put they, them in brackets on my emails after my name. And when you go into meetings, you can, you can choose to add your pronouns there and, and that sort of thing. And that sort of helps with reminding people to gender you correctly, which can stop dysphoria.
0: And because this is all about having that interdisciplinary approach, with your own academic studies and the wildlife, has there been any sort of intertwining, as it were, with that element of the non-binary and the creatures, perhaps, that you've been researching?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes some of the narratives told about creatures annoy me. So we're coming into Frogspawn season now, and there's always a narrative around frog sport. I don't know, you, you might have to cut this if this is too naughty for your podcast, but people will talk about frogs raping each other and frogs being addicted to sex. And sometimes frogs die in their complexus and they're mating if they get too carried away and then they drown. And people see them as sort of these very amorous creatures. But the trouble is that frogs don't actually have sexual organs like humans. Um, they They don't have penises or vaginas they don't they're not actually mating when they when they're cuddled together they're laying eggs and plexus isn't an, it's an egg laying situation narratives like that sometimes annoy me about animals when i find them i have to sort of switch off and say no if i go into why it annoys me i'll come across like i've got an axe to grind which i probably do <laughs>
0: But it's interesting that you say that because I was watching Planet Earth the other other day and they were focusing on on the frogs and I was like, oh no, the frogs! I've never felt so much for frogs before. <laughs> but now I'm like, oh, the frogs! I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure about the frogs anymore. I'm so confused. I'm having a confused <laughs> moment with frogs right now. But um, yeah. do we have to be then very careful in the way that perhaps we anthropomorphise the animals? Like, what should we do as someone who has clearly researched the language around various wildlife domestic anim- animals? what would be a good way forward from everything that you've immersed yourself in do you think
1: oh it's it's really difficult because people might claim that they are looking at animals objectively and that they are um just observing but whenever we observe an animal we we always bring in our own stuff my favourite mating strategy animal is probably newts, where one newt will lay down a pocket of semen and do a little dance and, and waft some pheromones, and the other newts might go and pick it up if they're convinced or they might just leave it there. <laughs> and I think that's a lovely, lovely way to, to mate. But that is me reading in my own prejudices about sex and about mating and about animals into the animal world. And people coming at it in 100 years or 500 years will have their own their own ideas of of ways that we should look at the world. So I don't think we can ever escape our biases and our prejudices completely. M- maybe if we're just exposed to lots of different ways of seeing the natural world and lots of different stories, it can make our, our views a little bit fuller. Um, maybe that's the best we can hope for.
0: That's amazing. That's definitely made me think very, very differently about the way I approach the animal world <laughs> and and also language generally so thank you very much and talking of language now you are an academic one why did you choose to pursue a field like this which also isn't that very well paid as, as far as I'm aware and two mm. what keeps you there
1: well that's good questions Probably <laughs> probably a singular determination and a, a focus, really, is the answer to both. So when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I did my undergraduate degree in Celtic studies, and I really enjoyed it, and I especially enjoyed, I did a, f- a few essays on animals. So I did, memorably, birds in Gaelic poetry, and I really enjoyed seeing all the ways that things like cuckoos and Cockerels and other birds had been seen through, th- through the lens of this other society that I was looking at, and I really enjoyed that. And I, when I went on to doing a master's degree and doing a PhD, I knew that I didn't want to focus on human history. I wanted to look more at animals in in the past and in literature and in history, and that's what I did. But I can't say that it's been really very well remunerated. So for me, I'm a there's this almost, there used to be two two pathways for academics. There's the teaching pathway and the research pathway. And from that perspective, I'd be, I'd be on the teaching pathway now. I'm, a, I'm an associate lecturer, so I get paid to teach people and I almost do research mostly in my spare time. Although occasionally I get grants and, and funding to do things, especially to visit archives and that sort of thing. And I get a very, very tiny amount of royalties from, from books, although not from articles. So that's, that's sort of the path that I've taken. But for people starting it now, it's it's very difficult because university degrees are so much more expensive than they used to be. University departments are closing all over the place, especially the the current government's war on wokeism means that there's been less and less interest um, and, and more and more pressure to close departments which aren't seen as adding economic value to people's lives. And that's that's a, that's a shame and it's going to make it harder to to research things, which I think are actually quite useful, like the situation of animals in the past, um, so that we can restore them properly and understand where we are in terms with them and, and what their current status actually is. But yeah, it's difficult and the, the state of the of academia is, is quite dreadful right now. There's a, such a huge proportion of people who end up doing PhDs who develop difficulties with mental health as well, that it's perhaps not a choice that you'd recommend to anyone unless they were really determined to do it for their own personal reasons and not expecting very much reward from studying at all
0: but taking up that element of that reward for studying as it were and that sort of Mm. element of the remuneration which is important because if you don't have people researching you don't have people having that time to have the resources to to help us create policies to decode policies etc yeah, is it something for people who are who are privileged? Like, what can we do to make it a lot more inclusive?
1: It's a real shame because it always used to be this way as well. That university was something for middle middle class, upper middle class kids to do, and to almost follow in their their parents' footsteps. That academia was a was almost something which you inherited from academic parents or grandparents and especially with the humanities that seems to be something which is is happening more and more but there was a period when it wasn't like that in the UK so when i went to university my university fees were 1850 pounds a year i was lucky in the second half of my of my childhood my parents could afford to support me more but when i was born until i was 12 years old i lived in a council house and When I think of other people who lived on the council estate with me, the kids I used to play with, it would be very hard for any of them to justify going to university today. So it seems like there is going to come a time when academics in this country go back to being mostly from a certain social class and their interest in tackling problems, which mostly are of interest to, to poorer people and their interest in studying poorer people and their interest in... Criticising rich people might be less, especially given the fact that with humanities, the most socially acceptable form of humanities to study is probably studying the great, um, the great monarchs and the great prime ministers and doing little hero worshipping pieces about them. It seems that academia is just going to be more simplistic and and less good. But you've got me on my high horse now, Driti. <laughs>
0: The whole point is to make people think differently. And if you've been in this field, then you're the expert, you know? So I'm glad that you're on your high horse. And I like the fact you've managed to bring another animal in. (laughs) It's always back to the animals. It's always back to the allegories. Um, In fact, it feels like everything that you're doing is very interdisciplinary, does intertwine with every single other element. It -hmm. feels like you're clearly quite passionate about... Where you are right now in life and what I'd love to find out is where do you want to head like what would be the ideal if money was no issue
1: that's a good question so I've recently published my book obviously and that's taken me years and the, the point of that was to get an overview of the state of nature in the the 16th to 18th centuries and I thought at the beginning that it was going to be a categorical overview; that it was going to involve all the sources I could possibly find. But of course, since publishing the book, I found more sources. <laughs> I I continue to find new sources, so I'd I'd love to 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 continue doing what I'm doing, um, and to continue tracing animals and plants in the past and and finding how their status has changed over time and how humans have interacted with them and how they've interacted with each other. So I, I don't really know. I, I think I'll, I'll continue buttering on. But it, it is a labour of love almost because it's almost like a hobby, something that I'm not paid for, that I, that I do and I, that I financially suffer for, I suppose, because I could, I could probably get a, another job instead. But it's very rewarding in its own right.
0: The wonderful Lee Ray, who bridges their love of wildlife in an academic setting and much more. Do you have an interdisciplinary life? Because I would love to hear from you and perhaps we can chat on this podcast that goes with my newsletter, which is also called Have You Thought About? and can be found via www.drutishar.com. But please join me next time for a fascinating conversation with another guest who likes to mix up lots of things in their life. Do listen to past episodes and rate and review the podcast if you've enjoyed it. Thank you to Rian Shah for the music.